0: You know, when you get old in life, things get taken from If you love something, if you have a strong passion for something... Life, as we experience it, is a big act. And the player
1: is you. When I was taking breaks on stage at, at my gigs and I'd just go get hammered drunk and then I was like hiding in my car in a parking garage reading books on my Kindle and I was just like, something
0: is sh- I can't fucking do this anymore, bro. What up, fam? That was uh, Justin Nault, today's guest. Justin has become one of my best friends here in Austin. He moved here like a year ago and uh, his journey is so fascinating. Although he's not an athlete, he has gone through a very uh, relatable ego death experience. Uh, I've connected with him and he shared his story. And he is somebody that has gone through the process of letting an old, strong, foundational identity piece of himself die. He is a musician. And when he was eight years old, he was playing piano and he was really good. And he started being labeled as a local phenom. And through high school, he became really well known for his musical and performing abilities. And he ended up moving to Nashville and really pursuing his dream of becoming the next Justin Timberlake. And he got an opportunity to be on a nationally televised competition um, show on ABC. I think it was called The Big Time. And he got all the way to the finale. And he lost. And that is what began the unraveling of his story of self and led him on a journey of deeper self discovery and uh, what ended up, you know, bringing us together. And uh, it's a really good episode. We go deep, and Justin, super grateful for him and his open heart and his ability to really share uh, his emotions that he was really feeling. It's a really powerful episode, and uh, I'm really excited to share it with all of you. Before we dive in, I wanna mention the launch of a new, powerful, and transformative community. Although there are countless communities and networks of high impact leaders, entrepreneurs, and influential visionaries, what they all lack is the depth of heartfelt connection that can only be achieved through what's known as communitas. Communitas refers to an unstructured state in which all members of a community are equal, allowing them to share a common experience facilitated through a rite of passage. This is what allowed me to create such an unbreakable bond with my teammates during my time in the NFL and why I'm so passionate and excited about facilitating an initiation into a new type of community, one where all of its members are focused on embodying their highest potential and fullest expression, who also have the desire to use their impact and influence to create a more beautiful world right here and right now. If you're interested in learning more or feeling called to apply, check out the link in the show notes. Without further ado, enjoy this episode with my good buddy, Justin Null. Justin, my man, what's up, brother? How are you, man? I'm doing fantastic, dude. I'm really, really looking forward to this conversation. And yeah, uh, you know, as I'm relaunching this podcast, I know it's really focused on... you know Most of the guests are going to be elite athletes. You know, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's been a big part of my journey. But one of the things that I'm really loving about the, the intention of this show is it's, it's called Life Beyond the Game. And it's not just life beyond the game of sports. There's a, lot of, a lot of sports are just games, but it's life beyond the game of life. And mm. the intention of these stories and guests is to really share the journey of really going on a deeper journey of self-discovery and healing. And uh, I know you have uh, an incredible journey and you're a really close friend of mine. And so I'm really stoked about dropping in with you. And uh, you were a incredible musician and we were talking about it before the show started um that was something you kind of just you fell in love with and you, you started doing because you you became good at so kind of paint the picture of kind of who you were and this journey that kind of where, where the genesis of the journey of becoming a musician started
1: yeah man it's cool because we you and i have dropped in a lot personally and had a lot of conversations about like what formed us and when i was young i just loved. Being a performer. It was it was really interesting. I like I actually fell in love with like comedy first. It's like Jim Carrey and Jim Carrey's movies. And I was just very like outgoing and very performative. And like my parents and their friends would laugh. Like I got a lot of praise for being like very charismatic and very like in your face and very funny and all these things. And then um, I'd mentioned this to you earlier, but I I saw a friend of mine, older kid, uh play Wipeout on his piano, like the riff, the guitar riff of Wipeout on the piano. And I was like, that's really cool. And I asked my mom for piano lessons. So she hired the same piano teacher because she was friends with his mom or whatever. And I started taking piano lessons when I was eight and just fell in love with it, man. I just like lived in the basement on this old upright piano we had. I just play it for hours and hours. I would listen to songs and try to figure them out. And then I started writing my own songs when I was 13 because I fell in love with Billy Joel's music. My dad had an old um, Billy Joel Greatest Hits Volume 1 and 2. It was like a double disc. And I had this old, like an old rotating CD player. I had like a five disc CD changer thing. And I just put those two CDs in there and put it on repeat. And I fell asleep to it every night. So I literally just like sleep all night long at, you know, age eight to 13, just like listening to Billy Joel over and over and over and it just drilled in my head. And yeah, by the time I was 15, like I recorded a full album in my basement. Like I played every instrument on it and I just became like completely obsessed with music.
0: Every instrument. Wow. What other instruments did you play?
1: Uh, I play well piano mostly. Piano is my primary instrument. And I sing and I play guitar. I play bass guitar. I play drums. Play like a little bit of harmonica. So I
0: just kind of dabbled in everything. So you fell in love with music and and performing, and you know yeah. using music as an opportunity to perform and kind of share your charisma. Uh, I'm sure with your family and your friends. What what was the experience if you could drop back into you know that eight to thirteen year old? And just diving in and absorbing it and like loving it and almost becoming obsessive about it, was it just because you loved it, or was there a idea of I want to be great at this thing for a specific outcome later in life?
1: Yeah, when I was younger, I had no specific outcome, right? Like I, I believe that when we're younger, we do a much better job of living in the present moment. We don't plan so much for the future as we do as adults or even as teenagers when school is like, "What are you going to do with the rest of your life?" You know, at that age, I was so young that. And even this, like I'm looking back at it now, I don't think I knew this at the time, but it just got me a ton of love from grown-ups. <laughs> I was like, yo, grown-ups love this. They're like, everyone is freaking out about this thing. Like, I'm gonna keep doing more of this thing, you know? And I did enjoy it. I did love it. I, I don't think I would have spent, you know, eight hours at a piano as an eight-year-old if I didn't love what I was doing. Um, but I do think there was some degree of I was getting external validation from it for sure. Mm-hmm. You know, like my yeah, dad worked but- a lot, he was a real busy guy, and like I just knew that it was going to get me attention. It was like, wow, look at this thing
0: that he does, you know? Yeah, it's interesting upon reflection, because it, I didn't know this at the time, but uh, as I've gone on this deeper healing journey, you know, when I started playing football, it was the same thing. Like, you know, I just, I started, I was good at it and I loved mm-hmm. it. And then I started receiving a lot of external validation. And, you know, football had a lot of male role models that I really looked up to. And I learned a lot about what it means to be a man and how to show up. And it's things that was not really present for me, for my own dad. And so, unconsciously mm-hmm. really being drawn to this thing and then all of this external validation that just continued to escalate as I continued to get better. When for you did it become like, did you start noticing like this, this is a little bit off and maybe not enjoying it as much or it's becoming more of a job rather than doing it for the love of performance?
1: Oh man. I mean, again, it's always so interesting because like hindsight's twenty twenty. I can look back and see red flags all along the journey of, I don't think I loved it as much as I thought that I did. Um, but for me, what's really funny is when I was, when I was that young, I hid it from all of my peers, like eight, eight years old to like probably 15 years old. Nobody knew I played piano Why is that? I didn't tell anybody because I grew up in a really tough place. Um, I grew up in New England, small town called Coventry, Rhode Island. Um, I had a lot of toxic masculinity in my upbringing. I played hockey for 10 years. All my uncles were like, you know, angry French hockey players. We like very much glorified fighting. I got in a lot of fistfights as a kid and a teenager. And, um, it's going to sound terrible to say on a podcast now in 2023, but at the time it was like, things like that in my community were considered feminine and would get called like gay. Like That's gay. Mm. You play piano, you know? So I hid that. And it was it was a really interesting experience because I knew that grownups loved it. Like I was playing recitals and all the grownups were freaking out about it. And then I became a drummer. I played drums in a pop punk band when I was 15. Drumming's a lot cooler. Like, way cooler, way <laughs> yeah. cooler, right? So I was like playing these dingy dive bars. I mean, we were playing gigs in like Providence, Rhode Island at 15 years old. My mom's like driving us there in a minivan with all of our gear. And we're like playing these gigs and we put out CDs and stuff. And and um, I started a clothing line. I was like selling it out of my locker. So I was like doing all the cool stuff, right? And then when I was 16, there was this talent show. And this girl that I knew had seen me play piano in my basement. I like played for her. I don't remember why I played for her, but I did. And she was like, you play piano. You're amazing at this. And I was like, all right, cool. So she convinced me to, it was the day of auditions for this talent show. And I was like, I don't think I'm going to do that. Like, and she was like, no, I'm going to drive you. Like, we're going to put your piano in my car. and we're going to go there right now. So I went there. I was like, all right, let's see. And I auditioned for this thing. And the people freaked out. They were like, you're in, done. And then they put me on stage. So the first time I played and sang for my peers was a crowd of 700 people in this big auditorium. I didn't know to what degree it was being filmed, but they, there was a video crew there. And then they put me on the local news and then they put me in the local newspaper and my whole life changed forever. It was literally like I was getting called Elton John and Billy Joel. And like, I was a local phenom and all this stuff. And so by my senior year, I had to like step it up even more. So that year, like I played Piano Man by Billy Joel. So I played and sang and I had the ring on my head, the the rig on my head for a harmonica. So I played harmonica at the same time. And like everybody flipped out like standing ovation. And at 17, I got my first paying gig and I was making like, you know, 150 bucks to play for three hours or something like that. And I was like, wait, I can, I can do this as a living. Like this is crazy, right? So that was really the catalyst of making money at it. And like, I was selling shoes at like a famous footwear at the time, you know, for minimum wage or whatever. I was like, well, this is cool. I can just play gigs. And then, um, I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life at that point. I had no idea. So then I learned about Berkeley. Berkeley College of Music is a, a music school in, in Boston. It's like world-renowned. And I was like, I'm just going to apply. That was the only school I applied to. Only one. I was like, if I don't get into that, I'm not going to college. And I got into Berkeley. So then I went to Boston and I was, you know, paid my way through Boston and paying rent. I didn't go to the dorms. I like, got my own place and I'd go home every weekend and play gigs, playing like four-hour gigs, four nights a week, and then taking classes at Berkeley four days a week. Like, just really like... Totally burn myself out, but I was making a living playing music and I was studying music. I did really well in college; like had a great GPA and all that stuff. And then I studied songwriting, and from there moved to Nashville. Nashville's mm. the songwriting
0: capital of the world. And before we get in, before we get yeah, into yeah. that, I just want to go back to kind of being labeled this this child prodigy, like people yeah. witnessing you and you showing up. I'm curious about the the psychological kind of pressure or that that ex- that specific experience where. Before, I'm sure there was some types of nerves of, of judgment of how am I going to be viewed because you kind of had a closet, you know, performer, charismatic personality, and you just decided yeah. to go all in with it. So I'm curious about leading up to that experience, what was the, the feelings you remember having as far as like fear of judgment and then, you know, leading into being painted as this child prodigy and kind of the pressure or anything that you maybe have experienced from that kind of label and all the attention you started getting.
1: Yeah, it was, uh, it was very, very strange. I do remember that because it was this kind of like closeted thing that I didn't really talk about. And then it went to like, and what was funny is like, obviously when I was younger, I had this kind of like, Oh, this is like a feminine thing to do. And then once this whole thing happened, I became very popular and got a lot of attention from girls. There were girls everywhere. Right. It just, all of a sudden it was like, I had big curly hair and they were like, I mean, they were literally, we did, we ended up doing a dance show a few months later where this whole dance crew did a choreographed dance to me playing great balls of fire on stage. And all of their t-shirts said, I heart JN, like I heart Justin Nault. It was like, I mean, it was crazy, man. I was like, ended up like small town celebrity. I ended up like the principal would come take me out of home room and like bring me to Burger King and he'd like, just like give me food and stuff. And then like, as a surprise, like every now and then he'd be like, oh, I'm going to do it my senior year. He's like, I'm going to do a special gift for the seniors. So I'd be like sitting in home room and it'd be like, Justin Nault, come to the principal's office. So I go to the principal's office and he'd be like, hey, we're going to just like surprise. We're going to bring all the seniors into the auditorium and we're going to roll a piano out on stage. Like, can you just like play like five or six songs for your peers? And I was like, yeah, sure. So I just, it was crazy, dude. It, and, and I realized like And obviously like small town, it it wasn't a big deal, but to Uh a child, I was a child, to a child, it was a huge deal and a lot of pressure. And I was like, oh wow, like this, it like took over my life because I would imagine, like I can't even imagine like what Justin Bieber's life is like, right? Like the way that people treat him. And I was just like, yo, I like don't have to go to class. I had like a 2.0 GPA. There was all these things that I had to do for like capstone projects. I didn't do any of them. And I still graduated. Like I just, the amount of special treatment I got was insane. And it was from getting on stage and playing piano. I was like, this is a life-changing like paradigm shift, you know?
0: Yeah, that's so fascinating. Was there, was, was there any inflation of ego at this point? I'm sure you didn't have the language for it. But as far as like oh, your expansion yeah, of like dude. kind of owning the place all of a sudden, and were you surprised by like, wow, this thing I kept in the closet now, it's like the thing I'm known for. And it's, it's giving me everything I'd ever wanted and all this attention. Like, how did you handle that?
1: Yeah, dude. I thought I owned the town. <laughs> you think about it mean, like, in a way you did. Holy cow! Yeah, like the little teenage dude. I would get pulled over for speeding, and the cops were like, "Ah, it's Justin. Go ahead." You know. <laughs> and then and then I started playing gigs, and these look like it would be at like local Italian restaurants or like bars or whatever. Like on the weekends, I'd be playing these four hour gigs, and it's all my friends' parents are like there, like all these people would come out to see me, and like the adults are getting super drunk, and they're like singing along as I'm playing and all this stuff. It was it was wild, dude. And I mean, I really like you know, I grew up pretty quickly because of my home situation, like a divorce happened. And then I was alone with my mom and my sister. And I became like the man in the house and all this stuff. But dude, I mean, if you would ask me like now at 36, I feel like more of a child now than I did at 17. At 17, I was like, this is it. I'm done. Like I won the game this is crazy. This is like all there is to it. And like, and I was still like, and then on the side, right. I'm like getting in fights and like, I'm like really tough and all this stuff. And like, so I'm like a popular kid. Don't mess with that kid. He'll beat you up. But he also like plays piano on stage. And he's also like friends with the principal. It was like, it was very weird. And then I was making great money. Right. So I'd like go play on the weekends. And at that point, I mean, I got to the point where at, by the time I was 18, I was doing like 250 bucks an hour to play music. And coming from like a minimum wage job, right? I was like, it was wild, dude. Like everything just changed in a
0: two-year period, like so rapidly. How did your friend circle like having all the money and having all this like disposable income at that age? I mean, what was that like being able to like kind of ball out in that yeah. way with all your friends?
1: What's so funny, is I was literally just about to talk about the friend situation and you brought that up. I'm like, wow, I love that your brain went there. But yeah, it was... Um, so my mom's house, the the house that I like moved into when I was 8 my whole family. My dad decked this place out. So, I had like a built-in pool and like an outdoor like bathroom and there was like a fire pit and trampoline and like all this stuff. There was a hot tub in the house. And I didn't really have parental supervision as a child at all, right? So, it was like I literally would just throw massive parties and I would like get some grown-up to buy me, you know, 250 dollars worth of beer and tequila or whatever. And I would just throw mat like a hundred people would be at my house, like just partying. Like every weekend was like parties, unless I had a gig. Like if I had a night that I didn't have a gig, like I'm throwing a party. It's crazy. Yeah. But what was interesting is I know the ego was there because like all my old friends that I had, like when I was in the punk rock band and like, you know, playing gigs and stuff like that, we were very like, our parties were like, we were having like DiGiorno pizza and like drinking Mountain Dew. It was like a different thing. And then I became like you know, like you see in a movie, like a popular kid and like, we're throwing these big, crazy high school parties, like American pie style. Right. And I just became this kind of like larger than life thing. And like, I lost a lot of friends for sure. Cause I know like my ego was, was out of control. And I was very much like, you know, I grew up with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sylvester Stallone teaching me what masculinity was, you know, and I was, and I played hockey for 10 years and I was like very tough. Like, so it was just that. It was like, not only was it this popular person, but it was also like, do not cross me. Like if you're 17 years old as well, and you say some shit that I deem disrespectful, I'm going to fight you. So it was like, I was like constantly, it was weird, man. I just had like, I'm not a giant ego. Giant. ego. Yeah. I know that I did.
0: Yeah. How much do you think that that kind of that that anger and that trying to show up and prove yourself was because of you didn't really, you said you didn't have a father kind of role model in the house and you had to kind of show up and be the man of the house. How much was missing that, you know, I mean, I think all of us in our society and culture really haven't had those role models, like you talked about, of of what real healed masculine energy is. Um, but how much does that play a role in that kind of two sided trying to prove yourself? And then you kind of have this closet feminine performer side. It's this really interesting dichotomy that you danced with throughout your childhood.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so interesting too. I think <laughs> I'm laughing because you said closeted feminine performer. Like it took me till I was thirty-five and dating Megan. Who you know very well, before I could dance. I had like a shame wall around dancing. Like if I was on stage singing and playing piano and people were like, Ooh, that's a sexy man, ha, ha. like that was great. But like if you would have asked me to dance, I wouldn't dance in public with a gun to my head. Like I just like no. So anyway, it's funny, like the feminine performance. I think of like a Mick Jagger, and I'm like, Oh, I could never do that. Like I couldn't do what he did because I had this shame wall around it. But yeah, the masculine stuff is, is tricky. And I've had a lot of really, my dad is like one of my best friends in the world. He's amazing. We have an amazing relationship now. And we, we had to go back and untangle a lot of stuff. And it's like, it's still difficult for me. Like, I assure you, my dad's going to listen to this. He listens to every single thing I do. Right. And it's challenging hey, to, yeah. Hey, dad. Shout out. <laughs> it's challenging to have the conversation, but I've, I've had the conversation with him of like, guys like you and I who really want this next level growth, we have to go back and tease apart what happened when we were younger. And it's possible to find a way to do that without judgment on anyone else or like it's anyone's fault. or like, I know that all my, my parents are doing the best that they could. Everyone's parents are doing the best they could with the tools they had available to them. But when the divorce happened, my dad ran a massive company and he had like 300 employees. He worked like 80 to hundred hour work weeks. And then on the side, when I was in high school, he stepped down as CEO and launched a faith-based homeless mission. And he started rehabilitating homeless addicts. And like every Christmas, he's doing like a big toy drive and like hundreds of families are coming and he's in like magazines and newspapers and all this stuff. He was just this like larger than life person. He was an amazing dad. He loved us like crazy, but he was very, very busy. Mm -hmm. And it took me until my you know early to mid thirties now to realize that most of what I was doing was probably trying to grab attention from it. Cause he was just so busy. Like I'd see him on the weekends and we'd do something fun and we'd have dinner or like in the summer, like once a year, he'd like take us up to Maine and he'd buy us dirt bikes. And then we'd like drive around on dirt bikes and get on a boat and do all this fun stuff. And, um, but it was really the day to day. My home life at home with my mom and my sister was very, very difficult. It was very challenging. Mm -hmm. And I did not want to tell my dad what was happening there because I like, you know, I loved my mom and I didn't want to cause problems. I had a lot of like needlessness as a child. The more quiet and less needs I have, the better. Um, but yeah, I mean, it took me a long time to kind of tease apart what I was trying to get out of that. You know, I was like very tough and I was lifting weights and doing like the masculine thing. But then I was also playing music and, and my dad loved my music career because my dad, and it took me a while to unwrap this too, but before I was born my dad went to Nashville and recorded an album and was a songwriter. And he like really wanted to make it, but my brother was born and he had to pay the bills. So he started a tech company, like rather than continuing to pursue his his dream, he couldn't like afford to be a starving artist. Right. So he kind of gave up his dream and then started this company, became an entrepreneur. And now his entrepreneurship plays a huge role in what I do now. And it's just like really wild to tease apart. The dad's side
0: of this has been a big challenge to, to, to look. Yeah, up. before we get into back into the, the the music career, and I'm really fascinated about following that thread. But for this is I'm really curious about this. Was there any? Was there any pressure put on your dad because of that that lost dream? Did he project any of his like, unlived potential in that realm onto you? Or was this something that intuitively you did and just kind of fell in love with and you had that natural talent, probably some type of epigenetic thing that came from your dad mm-hmm. into the music and charisma Was there any projection of like, you need to go do this because I was unable to? No,
1: it's, it's, it's probably both. My gut response is no. But when I was very young from single digits, we'd go camping with my uncle and his kids and my dad and his brothers would play guitar and sing Crosby, Sills and Nash. They were very good at harmonizing the way Crosby, Sills and Nash does or like the Beatles or the Eagles, right? So they would all sing together and they could harmonize so well that I learned to sing very young, learned to harmonize very young. So the music was kind of like handed to me in that way, but none of them made a career out of music or anything like that. So they didn't have this, like, I like, I wish I made it type thing. I do recall, and I'm like forever grateful for this. When I was a teenager, my dad told me to never worry about money. He was like, I don't want you. And this wasn't like a, I'm going to give you money type thing. He was like, I want you to be happy. If music makes you happy, you should go do music and let the money work itself out. you shouldn't do it because of money. Like there was no, like you got to go be famous now because my dad loves me so much and is impressed by what I do. And my, he has like, I'm sure there's some kind of bias there for what I do. Like when I released my first album, when I was 25, like my first real album out in the world. And we can get into that. I remember he was just like, this is better than the Beatles. This is the greatest thing. And he meant it. He was just like, he would be driving in his car, singing my songs. He'd be giving albums out to people. He's like, this is amazing. It's so good. Like he was like so supportive, but I never felt any kind of, you have to make it. I never felt that from him.
0: Man, this is so fascinating because I think it's a really important point to make that a lot of people have, whatever happened in their childhood, or they, they have really good relationship with their parents, but there's still ways that they maybe couldn't show up for us as kids in the way that we needed and so we act out in all these unconscious ways so although you have a really close loving relationship with your dad even throughout your childhood and growing up there was a way that he was not showing up to meet your needs and that created this kind of acting out and seeking validation and attention and and kind of this toughness and trying to like hide behind this like facade I'm curious on kind of the healing journey with your father Um, what, when did that start unfolding and and what was the process like? How, how did you start unraveling some of these deeper unconscious patterns that, you know, affect the lens in which you view reality?
1: Yeah, that was probably my late twenties. And what was challenging is, so my dad, I did not grow up religious. And when my dad and my mom split when I was 13, part of that was my dad on his own had become an evangelical born again, Christian he had this big moment and he became born again. And then he like lived in the church. He became like an elder in the church and was taking us to church and taking us to Bible camps and all this stuff. And I was like, whoa, I had like none. I mean, I got my, I did my first communion when I was a kid, like at a Catholic church because my mom was into that. And we'd go on like Christmas, we'd go to church once a year, you know? And then all of a sudden it was like, everything was religion. And his faith-based mission was like super Christian. Everything he was doing was like very faith-based. So my most formative years as a man like 13 to 18, I will say I had no guidance there. And he knows that. And we have covered this and we've talked about it. I'm comfortable saying that out loud. Um, Because he came into Christianity in a way where I was at a really formative age when he found it. And we've all seen people who find religion for the first time. It's like, they want to go door to door and tell everybody and everything's all of a sudden like profanity. There is no profanity. There is no like everything, like all of a sudden sin became this thing that was very real in my life that I didn't really understand prior to that. So all the things that I really needed him for, um, one would be masculinity and fighting and rites of passage. And like, do I need to punch somebody to prove myself? Probably not. <laughs> you know. And, um, and the big one for me as a musician, and you know this because of what you've been through, uh, was sex. When it really started to unravel and we started to repair things, that we didn't know needed repairing, by the way, was probably around age 28. I was driving to a gig. It was like a two-hour drive. I'm towing a trailer behind me with a bunch of gear. And we just got into this conversation. He like out of nowhere, he was like, hey, you know, I realized that we didn't have any conversations around sex. And he's like, and I'm really sorry. It's like, I've been thinking about that. And I feel like I, I kind of left you hanging. I remember he like used those wow. words. It's like, He's like, I kind of left you hanging. And I started to cry because it's emotional now too, because that was how I felt. So I went from a teenage upbringing where like sexual things are shameful and really bad and you're going to go to hell, you know, and like we did, there was no talk of it to being on stage in Nashville, Tennessee, in the most popular bar in the entire city With hundreds of women screaming at me and tearing my shirt off and putting their hands through my hair and saying filthy things to me and blah, blah, blah. And like, I did not know how to handle it. So my, my sexual experience in my twenties was very damaging to me. And I didn't know that at the time because I literally didn't know how to, how to handle it. So there was a lot of this stuff happening in my life. I was like living the rock star life and all of it was shrouded in shame the whole time. So, like virtually every experience I was having involved alcohol. And I was like partying and drinking and on stage, and I'm going to bed at seven o'clock in the morning, party like a rock star, you know, and like, and I I hid all of that for my family. I couldn't talk to them about that. I didn't talk to my dad about it. And then at 28, we had this big conversation. I started walking him through like what my 20s looked like. And he was like, Oh shit. (laughs) You know, he was like, I had no idea. I'm like, yeah, you had no idea because I I was never given a signal that I could talk to you about these things. So I kind of like suffered in silence and the men I was learning from were like men doing the same job as me, but they're like 10 years older. So they're like, yeah, look at that hot girl in the crowd. You should go talk to her. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it was like, phew, it was wild, dude.
0: Yeah, I want to dive into some of these party times. But first, yeah, yeah. I just, I'm, I am I want to highlight, like what was going on in your dad's life where he intuitively started reconciling this within himself, I guess, and, and brought it up to you rather than, because most of the time it's like, okay I'm starting to grow I'm starting to kind of differentiate I'm starting to understand the world in a, in a wider awareness and perspective and I can start to realize my childhood the way my parents didn't show up for me and usually it's you know I'm coming to my my dad and saying hey like you know you, you just weren't present enough for me or you didn't show up for me in this way or this experience happened and this is how it affected me and it might not have felt like it was a big deal to you because you were in an adult awareness. But for me as a child, it really affected me and you start unraveling these unconscious patterns. But for your dad to come to you and, and say, I'm sorry, I, I'm feeling emotional, dude. It's mm. to say, I'm sorry for not ever ha- talking about sex. My dad still hasn't talked about sex. My parents still mm. probably think I'm a virgin, even though I have a, a kid and I'm a father, which is fascinating. <laughs> Immaculate conception, bro. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, just your dad, what was your dad going through? Was he just starting to to wake up? Is he still... Yeah, just just go down that through before I move on. Yeah, um,
1: I guess unfortunately for this conversation, I don't know. It mm. really blindsided me. <laughs> I was yeah. like, uh, okay." So then I like I felt this openness and was able to communicate with him. And what's so funny, man, is like something about that. I remember some a, a big shift for us in our relationship is like once that door opened, I would start to say like shit and fuck around him, <laughs> and like I mean, at twenty eight years old, I was literally like being if more I authentic. S- yeah, like, if I swear yeah. my dad is going to get mad at me, like, and mm-hmm. I'd be, like, telling a story to my dad, and I realize, like, I'm a completely different human when I'm with my dad versus my friends, right? And, like, most people see this now, even people that can be authentic with, like, their parents, let's say, maybe, like, grandma comes around, and they're like, oh, mm-hmm. I'm definitely not going to use profanity in front of grandma, right? And, like, mm-hmm. we say that it's this, like, respectful thing, but it is. Ultimately, we have been sent a message to suppress our authentic self, right? We get mm-hmm. love if, if we behave in a specific way, Right. So my dad was like very anti profanity, and then I remember like it was this weird kind of like few months where I'd now I'll like I'll say fuck in front of him, whatever, and he's just and he knows just like oh this is Justin, he's a thirty six year old man, he lives life how he wants to, nobody gets to tell him he can't use profanity, you know that kind of thing. So slowly but surely, our relationship became more and more and more authentic, and we did a lot of growth together. Like he would come over to the house and lift weights with me. Like when I started Clovis, my nutrition company, he went like full Clovis. He like takes all my health and wellness advice. He's been taking my health and wellness advice for 10 years. And now, you know, we, he's called Papa Nalt in all the Clovis community, like everybody knows him. And he's this amazing story. Cause he's, he's going to be 64 and like he deadlifts 350 pounds. He's got visible abs. He's on zero medications. He's incredible health, you know, like So he's this kind of like picture of health as he's aged. And that's, that brought us really close together. He like very much followed my journey in a lot of ways. And in his fifties, he started taking piano
0: lessons. Wow. It was amazing. Yeah. That's incredible, man. And I just want to highlight your dad's listening to this. I'm sure I just want to highlight and acknowledge him and for any fathers out there. And this is probably a a message to my dad as much as anyone is, Mm. is, you know, I feel there's so much power in as a son, just being listened to and accepted for who we are. And, you know, especially because my my parents are in a a very closed-minded, dogmatic kind of religious belief structure. And I've been working through my own uh, rejection, feeling rejected by them and Mm. them, specifically my dad. Like, I just feel like he doesn't see me. He doesn't want to see me. He doesn't hear me. And all I really desire is for him to just show up and, and listen and actually like listen to me. But mm-hmm. I can just tell there's just like so much you know just closed off and I know it's because of you know his journey and his belief structure and there's a part of me that really you know has compassion for that. But the inner inner boy inside of me is just like I just I just want to be held I just want to be seen I just want to be heard. So I want to mm-hmm. acknowledge your father for that and any fathers listening if you're having you know, father-son dynamics. There's just a lot of power in just showing up and just, just, just holding space, just listening, mm. just, just asking questions, and, and really allowing um, for that authenticity to come through and not judging any of it. Mm. You know, so mm. I acknowledge that. Um, thanks for sharing, and thank you to your dad for being incredible, dude. I appreciate that so much. That's big. And dad,
1: I know you're listening. And same, like what you just said, I've said to him many times we've had a lot of like big emotional releases and big conversations around this. And like one of the things I just consistently thank him for is like, and you know this because of our whole crew here in Austin, right? It's like, if you're part of this crew, you were probably like the weird one among your friends. (laughs) And people are like, this dude's like into a lot of things and he's always searching for something and never seems to be enough. He's going to jump from music to entrepreneurship, to this, to that, the other, he's always searching for something, you know? And that's what I like just consistently thank my dad for is now after the age of 28. Right. So we got about 10 years of us being, having this relationship to get stronger every day. I talked to him the other day about for an hour and a half about like the power of now, he read Eckhart Tolle's power of now. And he's like learning to like live in the present moment. And every time I hang up with him, I'm just like, man, thank you for like, you never make me feel weird, man. Like once we crossed the bridge of like, Justin can now be authentic with Charlie, my dad. um, It's just been amazing. I'm like, thank you. You like make me feel heard and you don't make me feel weird. I've called him when I'm like, not quite sure about things, you know? And I'm just like, I think it might be like, blah, blah, blah. And I just give him my theory of the universe and how it works. And he's like, wow, that's like really interesting. Thank you for sharing that with me. And he'll like go there with me. And like, he just, he really is willing to have really, really kind of out there conversations by most people's standards. And he doesn't make me feel weird. And he doesn't try to tell me like, no, that's not how it works. It actually works like this. Like that, he just, he's so down to just let me have my own unique experience and to listen to how my experience is going. And then on top of that, if something seems to be working well for me, he's seen my life the whole time. And he's seen me be not so happy and seen me be very happy and not so successful and very successful and not so healthy and super healthy, right? So when he sees these versions, he's like, huh, tell me more about that. And then he'll go implement it. Like he Mm -hmm. learns from me all the time. And that's something that I find with a lot of, like in your situation, you talk about, I just talk to a lot of people where they're like, yeah, my my parents like still try to parent me. Like when I'm around them, they're like, no, it's actually this way. And you should do it more like us and stop doing it the way you're doing it. And what's so strange to me about that is most of the people that talk to me like that, you included, like usually the child is doing better or is more successful or has done more of XYZ or is happier. And a lot of times I see that. And then you have these parents that are kind of like, no, I don't know. They're, they're not necessarily living their best lives, but they're still like trying to give advice. You know what I mean? Mm. And that's something I noticed with my dad is when I was like five years old, he was listening to Zig Ziglar cassette tapes. It was like a big, it was like the early Tony Robbins, like way before Tony Robbins, right? Like Zig Ziglar's no. like the man. And I remember my brother and I writing down affirmations and my dad would stand us in the mirror every morning. I remember like standing there in my underwear, like reading like, I am Justin, I am strong. I am smart. And I like myself, like all these little things. Wow! So he was like big into personal development from a, from a very young age. So I did learn that like, it was just being very open-minded and learning, which was also why the shift into Christianity was so strange because he became very dogmatic for a good number of years.
0: Mm. Well, thank you, Charlie. Just want to give you another shout out, brother. I really appreciate Mm. the, the way you're showing up as a father, man. It's inspiring. Um, let's get into the, the kind of pinnacle of your career where you're You know, obviously on reflection, understanding all the shame and kind of energy and kind of hiding that you were experiencing. But take us through kind of the pinnacle, peak of the mountain as a musician moment and what you were going through at that time.
1: Yeah, that was, uh, it would definitely be Nashville. So I moved to Nashville right after college, moved there sight unseen, like signed a lease through a fax machine for a place I'd never seen. It's like the very musician story. I got there with one of my best friends. He moved down there with me, Nick and the the apartment was so flea infested we could see them jumping off the carpet so we had to like sleep in our car for three days while they bombed the place it's just like the crazy like i'm just going here i had like 12 grand in a savings account i'm like i'm gonna live on this while i figure this out and i was doing open mic nights six nights a week for no pay i mean it was just like i went i was big smish big fish small pond and went to very small fish in a very big pond and it took me you know honestly, probably only like two years to get my footing. I was like doing open mic nights for no money, living on savings. And then I found dueling pianos, which I'd never heard of before. Was what like was the dream? Piano
0: bar. You, you go into Nashville. What was that dream that you were holding for yourself when you, when you kind of like, I'm going to to do the thing. Cause obviously mm-hmm. Nashville is where you go to become a musician and a famous musician. And mm-hmm. so many people do it. Uh, yeah. What was that dream for you? The dream was a record deal. I mean, the, the only way I can describe it is like, I was
1: going to be Justin Timberlake. That was it. <laughs> it's like, that was the only thing, right? There was no like, I didn't go out there like, I'm going to make a good living. <laughs> you know, it was yeah. like, I'm going to get a record deal. I'm going to be um, fabulously wealthy. And it was so funny because now, like I, I think of what I thought of as wealth back then. I remember thinking in my head and a lot of my internal talk was if I didn't have a record deal and a million dollars by the time I was 30... I would consider myself having failed at that point is really the way I was thinking of it. And I moved there at 20, right? So, uh, tw- 21, I was 21 when I moved there. Um, and things happened very quickly for me, man. I did the open mics and I made a lot of friends and, um, talked to the Berkeley alumni network out there. And I was like co-writing with people and I started like writing songs and trying to pitch them to country artists to get songs cut. And then, uh, found the Dueling Piano Bar and I got that gig and, It just like snowballed from there. I started a a cover band uh, called the Cougar Petting Zoo, of all things. I was the front man for that band. And we started... What what, what kind of songs did you guys cover? Uh, Everything. Everything. So that's the thing about Dueling Pianos is like, we're like a human jukebox. And that's what's so appealing to the things. If you go to a Dueling Piano Bar, you could request like Great Balls of Fire by Jerry Lee Lewis, and they'll play it from the 1950s. And then you could request like Justin Bieber now, whatever he's playing now, and like, you'll get it or Taylor Swift or Maroon 5 or whatever. I could play about 600 songs by memory. Um, wow. so, that, so that's what I did with the, the Cougar Petting Zoo was also, we call it Nashville's premier all-request party band. So just me and all my boys on stage and we're just like getting super drunk and playing requests. And we started breaking attendance records at all these places we were playing. So we'd like break an attendance record. The next week we would what are break attendance our own attendance record. I mean, small clubs. So 700 to 1200 people probably around mm-hmm. there. But it was still a lot of people, right? I remember, slammed, I remember. Like full. Slammed, of places just were full. Just full. Yeah, crazy. like that amount of people. And the type places where like that amount of people was literally breaking fire codes. You know, it was so yeah. wall-to-wall packed. And I was doing that at the same time playing this different club called The Big Bang, which was a dueling piano bar, which is on Broadway, which is the main crazy strip of Nashville. Like anytime you see video footage of Nashville, it's Broadway. And I played on Broadway that strip for 10 years. I mean at one point I was doing around 300 shows a year with with all this combined. And some nights I'd play two shows in one night, you know, and I was playing six nights a week. So it was it was really crazy. I had that experience and then the Big Bang, the Dueling Piano Bar. So Nashville at the time I lived there and was like kind of at my peak performer, Nashville became the number one destination in the world for bachelorette parties. Like literally the number one in the world. And our Is mother, still the Big one? Bang. It may be. I'm not sure. I, I feel like it, it's got to be. <laughs> it's Probably. crazy to just see yeah. bachelorette parties everywhere. Yeah. And that the that bar that I played at, the Dueling Piano Bar, catered to them. So we were the number one bar in Nashville for those <laughs> bachelorette parties, right? So this place is just, I mean, line outdoor every weekend and just like thousands of people coming through each night and I'm on stage and really just like doing the thing and doing it big, you know? And And that was when I realized, I mean, I'd been in Nashville for a couple of years at that point. And I was making, you know, really good money, like over six figures as a musician. I had a 401k, I had health benefits, all this stuff. And I was like, whoa, like I really just made it happen very quickly in Nashville, which was, which is very rare, you know? And I knew that at the time,
0: um, was this, yeah, you, just, you, you say making it in Nashville as a dueling pianist, but, but this still wasn't your dream of becoming Justin Bieber. Was this still a yeah, stepping stone totally. at this point or was it kind of like a plateau yes. for you? No, absolutely. This was a stepping stone and I leveraged that
1: and used like clips of me playing and all this stuff to try to go out. I was like pitching my music to record labels and doing all this stuff. And then I recorded an album. So I went down to Austin, Texas, where we live now, and recorded my first album ever. And that same year, I landed a network reality TV show as Justin Nault, the artist. So it was the creator of The Real World and the creator of The Amazing Race, teamed up with Budweiser and did this show on ABC called The Big Time. And the big time was a global talent search of musicians. So they whittled it down, the global search to top 11. And I was part of that. And they flew me to LA. And then I was like with the creators. I'm, I'm literally sitting in a hotel room, playing piano for them and singing and like this whole thing. And every, all 11 of us had to do that. And then they whittled it down to top three, which was also me. And that was the TV show. And they flew us out to Vegas. That was my only, only time I've ever been to Vegas in my life, actually, was this filming this TV show. And leading up to it, it was just like we did a photo shoot that was for billboards. Like the, you guys are going to be on billboards all across interstates in America. This is prime time, ABC, Tuesday night at nine PM is when this thing is going to air. And like it was crazy. I and mean, they're like they're hyping it up. They're like you're staying in the same suite as Justin Timberlake in the MGM Grand. So, me, I'm like, I did it. (laughs) I I did the the job. Take us through that
0: experience. What was that experience like when you're there (sighs) in this suite? Like, did you walk in? Was it just surreal? Like, what was that experience like? It was insane.
1: It was absolutely insane. I was like, what is this? Like, a lot of it, I I have what I'm realizing now, and what's so funny is I just shared that conversation with my dad. I was completely unaware of present moment awareness at this time. So, it feels very dreamlike. I have a Mm. hard time putting myself in the emotional experience, but I can still put myself in the logical experience. Like I'm here to do a thing. What was on your mind
0: then? What was, what was, what were you thinking about in those moments? In you know, if you weren't present with it and being able to absorb it, what was the kind of the thing that was taking most of your mental awareness and bandwidth?
1: Most of it for me was, um, like making sure I got to sleep at the right time. And I was waking up at 5am and I was doing vocal warmups. I'm like gargling water and doing these on the TV show. You'll see me like doing these exercises. I was just like, fucking all business, dude. I'm like, Very rigid, here. very
0: structured. Exactly. Very like, I am
1: here to win this thing. That is the only reason I'm here. And I'm going to win this. And also very nervous. I was very nervous through the whole thing. And then you'll see like in the, if you ever watch it, like in the interviews of them, like interviewing me, I'm like, I come across as like very firm and confident and like, and to some degree arrogant, like very like, this is my show. I'm winning this thing. I am here to win. Like it's a lot of that. But mm-hmm. I was very scared. Very, very scared. I know that I
0: was scared the whole time. Wow, I know that now, you know. So take us through the rest of that experience. How did it unfold?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll tell you. I mean, I, I, there was like several different competitions. So what ended up happening, I didn't realize this when we were cast, but it was since they did a global talent search, like I was the American and there was a girl from Canada and there was a girl from the UK. So it became this like international competition thing. So they like took us to a the, the major league baseball stadium or whatever in Vegas. And we all had to like stand on home plate and sing our respective national anthems. And like, that was the first one. And then the next one was like, they put us in a recording studio. We had to write a jingle for the city of Las Vegas and record it with a live band inside of one hour. So like... That was my it's like opinion. a
0: challenge like, for the show. Yeah,
1: it was a challenge. Like my bachelor's yeah. degree is in songwriting. I'm like, I got, that. I'm gonna crush this thing, right? So I wrote like a really cool song, and we did the whole thing, and and um, that led. So one girl got voted off, and then the next one was a they packed this club full of people, and we did a live performance. So I'm like, okay, this is my shit. I'm like, I won this thing. This is good, right? So I do this whole performance. The other girl is actually now still a friend of mine. Her name is Jessica. Uh, Jessica Ridley. And she did her performance. I did mine first and then she did hers. And I'm like, I thought I had this thing in the bag, right? I'm like, this is, this is it. I'm done. I won the thing. And, um, I did not. So I remember like on the show, they hear this, like, uh, Jessica, the, the the host goes, Jessica, you in the big time, you in the big time, you in the big time. And he said it three times. And I remember standing there and I was like, that's not real. (laughs) You know, I was like, this, that's not what's happening right now. You know? And I was like, wait, what just happened? And I mean. I've heard, uh, my cousin was on like Project Runway and I've heard of other people being on show. One of my friends was on The Voice. who's was like huge on The Voice and everything. And I've heard a lot of these similar things. I mean, dude, I, it was announced that Jessica won and they walked me outside and put me in a van and sent me to the airport. Right in that, I mean, in that moment, they're like, well, yeah, we have a ticket for you. You're going home on the next flight. And I was like, what just happened? <laughs> right? like, I was like, this is insane. And what was crazy is if we go back to the shame wall and the dancing thing, they explained why I lost. And the explanation was that I stood behind my piano for the whole performance. I didn't dance. I didn't move around. I didn't come out and like interact with the crowd where Jessica was like, she wasn't playing an instrument. So she's doing the front woman thing with like a wireless mic and she's walking around. She's engaged in the crowd and doing all this stuff. I'm all business. I am at my piano. I will play every note correctly, like doing the thing. And I didn't loosen up and entertain in that way which is crazy because that's what I did in Nashville. There's videos of me in Nashville, like standing up on a bench on one leg, playing piano solos and like all this crazy stuff. But I was so all business, like I'm going to win this thing. And that's what ended up losing it for me. So she went on to play, like she won. The the whole thing was like, you get to play a set at the iHeartRadio Music Festival for a live audience at the MGM Grand, this this whole big thing. Um, So what's funny about that is the show between the time we filmed and the time we aired now i go home and i can't tell anyone what happened you signed this crazy sign your life away contract right so my whole family is like ready they're like waiting for this thing and they literally like um budweiser rented out this whole building and all my friends and family came and they scheduled me to play a live show with my band so basically like all my friends and family are in this room they're about to watch the show then when the show is over i'm playing live performance Everything's free. Food, drinks, free. It's like this is a big, crazy party thing, right? And I can't tell anyone what happened. I'm just like sitting there like, oh my God. And obviously, okay.
0: yeah. Okay. You got you to gotta take me to the moment because you had to relive the loss of this twice. And just <laughs> what you're sharing with the, you know, who you were, a little bit of arrogance, a little bit of inflation of ego, obviously this whole life. And you're like, I'm going to be a star. You have this opportunity to be a star and I got an opportunity to perform which is what I'm good at mm-hmm. just boom 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 inflation 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 and boom needle into that big balloon head and it just deflates and you're on this car ride what's going through your mind on this car ride was there like how did you process it do you remember the the mental loops was there like a little bit of victim energy was there kind of pointing the finger was there regret what what like I should have done this differently or like how are you processing that in that yeah. moment and then we'll get into having to sit with that for months.
1: Yeah, yeah, the the victim mentality was real at that point. I was convinced, you know, and I know like Jessica's a good friend of mine now and I'm I'm honest with her and anything that we talk about but like I thought for sure that I was better, right? So I was trying to figure out how that could have possibly happened. I was like there's no fucking way this is real. Like what just happened? And my my mind was like Oh, that one judge, she didn't really like me from the beginning. She was out to get me. And then I had this story in my head of like, Jessica's got four kids at home and that was part of her story, right? So I'm like, oh, they wanted it to be like a David versus Goliath thing. Like she's got, they want to let the mom win. And that's the reason why. And they had this whole story. And I had this whole fucking story in my head about how it wasn't my fault. It was very ego inflated. I'm sorry, Jessica, if you're listening to this, but I did, I had those thoughts at the time. And I look back on it now, I just like couldn't own the fact that I could have done better. You know Mm, what I mean? Or that I could have done something differently. I was very, had a lot of victim mentality around it. And then, and what's funny, like the drive home, I was with like a random Uber driver or whatever it was, whoever was driving me. And like, I knew about this contract. I immediately called my brother and told him.
0: (laughs) Yeah. yeah, I was like, when does that NDA expire? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. Right now. And
1: my brother's like a, you know, my brother is a, a, you know, call me if you need to hide a body type brother. That for sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so
0: I was like, listen, you like, you cannot tell mom, you cannot tell dad. And he didn't tell anybody. I mean, it must've been a huge gift to have somebody to vent that through. Cause like all yeah. that energy that's built up inside of you of like, fuck, how did this happen? And not being able to tell anyone, I just can't imagine the psychological, like just eating away at your soul type of experience that must've been.
1: Yeah, it was horrible, dude. And, and to answer your question that directly, like the weird shit that happens in your brain the first person I thought of when I lost was my grandma, my dad's mom. And Why I was that? like, I don't, I was like, she's going to be so disappointed, <laughs> you know? And like <laughs> in my head, like of, Sorry, my entire, of my entire family, she is the one that would give the least shits about this fucking TV show. <laughs> <laughs> she's like, what is reality TV? I don't care about this at all. I just love you. You're amazing. You know, it was so weird. Like she's the first person popped in my head. And I know for a fact that she did not care at all. So it's weird how the brain does that where I like, and then I could feel what I now know is just the sheer amount of love that I was looking for, dude. Right. Mm. Like when I was a child, that, that woman used to give me baths and she'd like lay me back, and she would pour hot water over my head, like washing my hair. And she would like hum these songs to me. It was just like so nurturing and so gentle. That was like the most feminine energy I'd ever had in my life, hands down. Like, And I can say that my mom knows that, that she was much more nurturing than my grandma was. So I think that like, I look back on it now and I'm like, oh, the person that like loved me the most th- that I felt like that kind of unconditional love for was the first person I really thought of.
0: And at the time... You thought it might be taken away from you because you failed. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I didn't more. have the time... I didn't have the self-awareness and the personal development at the time to like even piece that together. I was like, that's weird. Like, meme just popped in my head. We call our meme because we're French. I was like, meme just popped in my head. That's weird. And I didn't really know why, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I I went home and and I had to like tell everyone the show's over and we got this big party plan and you're gonna everyone's going to come and do the thing. So as now. everybody's
0: preparing for the party, how, what's going through your mind and your awareness knowing that you have to perform and do all this stuff and you're going to mm-hmm. have to relive this moment and then you have to experience the energy of disappointment from everybody that's there to celebrate you Mm -hmm. and then go perform. Take us through that experience. Yeah, I was completely numb. Completely numb. I just went back playing gigs and drinking. I was drinking six
1: nights a week in Nashville, man. Like I think I've said this to you before in private, but like I was drunk six nights a week for 10 years. You know, like I just, I didn't even know how to feel. I really didn't. So I just went back to that. I went back and I'm like, and I like show up at the Dueling Piano Bar and all my friends are like, we can't wait to see your show. This is amazing. Now, dude, at the Piano Bar, there's a fucking... 12-foot banner hanging off the side of the building on Broadway that's like, Justin Nault, the big time on ABC. It's me standing there with my arms crossed. <laughs> it's like, it's like, I'm like, I'm showing up to work every day with like tens of thousands of people in Nashville and I'm like looking up at the building and I'm like, oh, that's big shit. <laughs> like, that's me up there, right? God yeah, damn. dude. And like, I'm like freaking out. I'm like, I I couldn't really feel it. I was trying to be like kind of comical about it and not really caring. But I mean, like I was losing sleep over it and stuff for sure. And then what happened, like when you talk about the ego balloon, where like, I mean, I was in the room with the producers and they are like, this whole photo shoot you just did is, this is your billboard photo shoot. I Meaning, this is going to be on the billboards and it's nine o'clock. It's prime time. Between the, f- the show filming and the show airing, we just kept getting emails, text messages, updates. Hey, the show got moved. It's not going to be on Tuesday. It's going to be on Thursday, 6 p.m. And by the time the show aired... It was at 3 p.m. on a Saturday in between college basketball games. Nobody gave a shit. This entire thing went from like a primetime network TV show. And I don't know how that game goes, but like there were never any billboards. I did a whole billboard photo shoot. Was there a reason for that? That nobody shared anything? It was just... I have no idea. They, they, they were literally just like, hey, like tell your friends and family it's airing on this date. And I remember being like, this date is a Saturday. And 3 p.m.? who watches TV at 3 p.m. on a Saturday, bro? You know, I was like, this yeah. is... What the hell? Everything crumbled around me. Like, everything. And wow. that was my first Were you creating feel, a
0: story of, like, is it because of me and I wasn't good enough and the show wasn't as what they thought it would be because I didn't show up in the way I knew how? Was there any of that going on of, like, taking, like, just the, the brunt of the show kind of collapsing? Did you put that on your shoulders as well?
1: I don't think that I did. I... Not in that way. I did have some guilt around the fact that as the show was diminishing from what I thought it was going to be, I was a little excited because I didn't win. Mm.
0: <laughs> you know what yeah. I'm saying? So I had a You're little like, bit of that. Good.
1: Fuck you. Fine. I, it, exactly. it doesn't matter anyway, because I didn't win. Yeah. yeah. Shows the show's bullshit. Don't watch it, you know. It was just kind of that. But um I remember leading up to the show, just thinking of how I was gonna handle it. And at the time, I didn't really know how to express like what I considered negative feelings, like sadness or things like that, where I just kind of numb things and I was just always happy and always optimistic. It was like my job. That's the thing about performing, right? Like you can hear that somebody died at 4 PM and like, you got to be on stage at 8 PM happy and making people laugh and make people smile. Cause dueling pianos is a lot of, um, physical, um, comedy and a lot of like banter comedy. There's a lot of comedy involved in dueling pianos. I'd crawl around on pianos and jump around and do dances and all this crazy stuff. Right. So I just always called it like dance monkey dance. It was kind of that feeling like you got to show up. Now. But same thing for you. If you feel like shit on a Sunday and you're, yeah. you got to, you're playing, you know?
0: Gotta go so, for
1: it. Yeah. So I just kind of went back to being like my clownish kind of silly self until this thing aired. And I remember like rehearsing through like, what am I going to do when I lose on TV and everyone's watching it? And then I got to go up and play. So I had it all planned out, dude. All planned out. I'm just like, I'm like sitting in the front of the room. There's big screen TVs everywhere. And that moment comes that fucking line that I will never forget, which is that judge being like, Jessica, you win the big time, you win the big time. And that comes and I just like, I don't know how that I just like stared at the screen and I was in the front of the room. I didn't even look at anyone. I just put my hand up like this, like put my fist up in the air and didn't look back at anybody. And the whole room was completely dead silent. I mean, fucking dead silent. Nobody was even breathing, bro. And I was like. And I just like couldn't really look at anybody, kind of gathered myself. And then like the the rest of the show had a few minutes left and you get to see Jessica do her thing at the iHeartRadio festival and all this. And then I just like walk over, I like sit at the piano, all my buddies sit down behind me. They like grab their instruments, whatever. And I just like bring the microphone up to my mouth. And I was like, and I had this plan. It was so funny. I, like planned this stupid line. I like, I'm like, what the hell? And I was like, well, I was the only one on the show who didn't cry. And I was the only one on the show that had to be bleeped out for profanity. So I think I did pretty good. And everybody laughed. Everybody just burst into laughter. Everyone's laughing like, "Oh wow!" Like I just like kind of cracked the ice and like made it like funny. And then I put on a really good show with my band. You know, we had a really good time. Everybody loved it. They were like dancing, singing. Everybody, it was just really interesting. And then there was this journalist there that was there to interview me and like talk to me about the whole thing. And it was like that was wild, dude. <laughs> it was, it was, but the the big thing, and you know, Jessica and I have talked about this a lot. Is I mean that show was a fart in a windstorm, man. Like it came and went and not shit happened for our careers. You know, I leveraged it a bit more because I started recording music videos and I got on YouTube and started hustling YouTube and doing cover songs and doing comedy videos. And like, I really was trying to hammer this. And I started like pumping my original album to college radio stations across the country, started getting licensing deals, which was putting my music in TV shows and movies and that kind of stuff. I really started hustling it, but that the the facade had cracked very clearly for me because I hated the entire Vegas experience. Once I came back, now when I was there, I was in like business mode and I was like, this is all business and everything. But like the people on set were like rude and everybody was in bad moods. And it was like, now I just think of it as this like kind of shitty reality TV show that I went through. Like I didn't enjoy the experience. And I remember just thinking like, the closer I get to this thing, this, this vague abstract thing that I think I want, the less I like it. And I was doing, like I said, like, you know, probably 300 shows a year at that point. And I remember thinking like, man, the more famous I get, the more I will be trapped on stage, the higher the stakes will be, the more people will own me and my time. Because that was an interesting experience is anywhere we were on the show, we had like a dedicated security person with us. I was asking permission to use bathrooms. I was like, this is bullshit.
0: (laughs) You know what I mean? This is what getting famous is like.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. And I hated the whole experience. And that was when I, it started to crumble for me. And I like got home and I wasn't, I was just, months went by and I wasn't writing songs. I was just like doing the same gigs over and over. And like, I called it golden handcuffs because I was making good money at the time. I was making really good money for my age and everything. And like, and I was just like, is this it, man? Like, I'm just gonna, and then what happened was really interesting. You'll probably remember this because we're similar in age. Um, There was this whole like grunge 90s, era with like Counting Crows and Goo Goo Dolls and Third Eye Blind and Collective Soul and Tonic and all this. And one of my best friends in Nashville got the gig as a drummer for Tonic. So, which was interesting because he's the same age as me. So we like, we were in middle school listening to these guys and now he's playing for them and they're like 50, right? <laughs> you know? So like the next thing I know, I'm like backstage hanging out with like Collective Soul and Tonic and all these guys. And I started looking around, man. And like, you know, if these guys are listening to it, I'm sorry. Your, your life bummed me out. I don't know how else to say it to you. But <laughs> um, I was just looking around. I'm like, these guys are on like their third marriage. They're still getting shit-faced drunk every night. I'm going to their shows now that used to be stadium shows. And it's like some mini festival in like a middle of nowhere town with 400 people. And they like, they live in a bus. And I, and I was like, yo, oh no. It was like, I got like a glimpse into the future. And I started mm. planning my escape. I read the four hour work week by Tim Ferriss and I was like, Oh, I think I can make some money online. Maybe I can leverage. Who recommended that book or... to you?
0: How did you find that book?
1: Yeah, it was totally random. I, uh, at the time I had like $50,000 in stacks of cash in a safe in my house. <laughs> Cause I Why? just
0: didn't. Oh, Cause all the tips from the. It was all channels? tips. Yeah. Right. I just yeah. like got tired
1: of going to the bank. So I'd like wrap them in elastic bands and like throw them in this safe. And, like, I still had money in the bank and I'd bought real estate. I'd like done some shit, you know, I was like doing all right. Mm-hmm. And, um, I started talking to my brother, my brother's degrees in finance and economics. And I was like, yo, dude, I don't know how to invest. Like I got this, house. he found me the house. He's like, told me to put an offer on the house and everything. He's big in real estate. So he was like helping me. I was like, dude, how do I invest? He gave me this book that was like how to invest 500 to $5,000. And I was like, this is interesting. I learned some stuff I'd never heard. So I just Googled like investment books. And weirdly, the four hour work week was one of the first ones that popped up. And it was like, not your traditional business book. You should read this. This is interesting. And
0: were you reading other books at this point in your life and, or, or like expanding your awareness in that kind of realm? Or was this one of the first kind of self development books that you started diving into? One of the first. Uh, the four
1: hour work week changed everything. Tim Ferriss, the human, changed everything for me. I've never met him. I hope I do someday. But I mean, like, this led me from the four hour work week to the four hour body which I started learning more deeply about nutrition. And I was always a fitness junkie. Like from age 15, I was lifting weights. I wanted to be, you know, super masculine. I was a boxer in college. When I was in Boston, I started boxing to get all my meathead stuff out. I was powerlifting. I was literally, I hired Olympians to teach me Olympic lifting. I was doing CrossFit. Like it was always fitness. I was like very, very fitness heavy my whole life, but I never learned about nutrition. So I never like got the results I should have gotten. I was never really happy with my body. That's an, another part of this story. The masculinity side is I was a chubby kid growing up. So the shift from like chubby kid to the, uh, a, a lean kid at 16 years old on stage, getting all this attention from girls was like, I've had serious body dysmorphia my whole life. And mm-hmm. I still do, which has carried me into the work that you know me for. Obviously you didn't meet me as a musician, right? But So that was it. I I started like Tim Ferriss was my first foray into like learning about different nutrition things that you could do. And it like really sent me down a rabbit hole. And then he, then his podcast came out and then he's like recommending all these books and having these people on his show and talking about morning routines and evening routines and all this stuff. And like, I went from like, when I was taking breaks on stage at at my gigs, we'd like play for an hour, then have an hour off. That's kind of how dueling pianos go. And I just go get hammered drunk and then I was, like, hiding in my car in a parking garage reading books on my Kindle. And I was just like, something is sh- I can't fucking do this anymore, bro. Like, yeah. I mean, whew.
0: Yeah. Yeah, saying that to you right now is heavy. Mm. You just the feeling, get there, yeah. man. Yeah, you're done. I the feeling. And yeah. the whole identity and the whole dream and the whole idea of what you wanted out of life and what you thought was going to make you happy is, is it's it's a, it's a fallacy. And you start recognizing that and you start having to peel back the layers. It's intense and it's not yeah. easy. Yeah. It takes a whole fucking lot of work and a lot of courage and a lot of deconstruction and a lot of just f- like relationships that you think they start no longer serving you. Things start coming, being revealed to you that and you start taking responsibility for your life, and that's a fucking hard journey to go down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll share
1: this with you because I think it's a really uh, important story for anyone. Anyone who's listening to your podcast is listening for the reason of what, like, the things we're talking about right now. And I was uh, maybe like thirty-three or thirty-four. This was long after I had discovered psychedelics. I discovered ayahuasca when I was twenty-eight, and that led me down the whole plant medicine journey. And I hired a talk therapist, and I really started. Actually, Tim Ferriss was like, "You." He's like, "You can't know anything about yourself if you've never had a therapist." And I was like, "Okay, I guess I'll hire a therapist." I don't really know what I need to talk about, but I guess I'll do this. It's just optimization, you know. Like, and it cracked obviously cracked open a ton of stuff for me. I showed up on day one like my life is perfect. I don't even know why I'm here. I got a great relationship with my parents. Everything's great. I got my dream job. Everything's perfect. Six months later, I'm like crying about my relationship with my mom. Right, (laughs) I had to like get there, but Mm -hmm. um. Yeah. It was, it was really wild. So I had this one moment now this was long after I was, I was already Justin from Clovis with the podcast and everything. People knew publicly about my plant medicine stuff and psychedelics and my parents knew my whole thing. And I'd have had big healing conversations with them at this point. Like I was like in it and it was a Sunday morning and I had microdosed LSD with a plan to get a lot of work done for my online businesses. And my mom, my sister called me, they're like, we're going to go see rocket man, the Elton John movie. And I was like, okay, yeah, I'll come see that. Like, cool. So I'm just like not thinking at all that I have a microdose in me. And I I get there. And Elton's story, if you haven't seen this movie, is like probably around the age of eight years old. He's like playing piano. And all of his relatives are like, oh, my God. Like they realize something special is happening here. And. Yeah, man, so. The whole story of that movie, Elton's like substance abuse and all the trouble that he went through, starts seeing a therapist towards the end of the movie and everything. And he's, he's struggling with the realization that he has no idea if he has ever been loved for who he is, right? Because from a very young age, there was so much external validation that he just kept doing it. That was how he got the love, right? So it was me, my sister, my mom, my stepdad. And I mean, like, the childhood scenes with him are, like, five minutes into the movie, right? And I am bawling. <laughs> like, I cannot hold my shit together. I am, like, hysterically crying in a movie theater. My family is like, what the fuck do we do about this? Like, what is happening here? And uh,
0: Not like sniffles in the, in the corner, no. like, full on making a scene.
1: Oh, yeah, dude. I'm, like, funeral crying. You know, and I'm like, wow, and like I have no tissues with me, or nothing. I'm just like, wow. My sister's like awkwardly has her like hand on my back. Like, what is happening, right? And I'm like, and I get through, like, hold it together. I watch the whole movie, and then when we leave, I I start trying to verbalize my experience to my mom. And uh, so I remember saying to her that you you reach a point, you don't know it when it's happening
0: but you you reach a point where you don't know if anybody loves you cuz you you rely on that thing, you know.
1: And like when it starts that young it becomes a, like, you know, all my friends and everybody that was around me, nobody was having the same experience, you know, especially in like a small town. So it's like, all my friends were around me and they loved partying and they loved hanging out with me. They loved all the things, but like, and I talked to like my best friend, Evan just moved here to Austin and I talked to him about it all the time. He's like, yeah. He's like, dude, like being around you, is fucking wild. <laughs> you know, he's like, he's literally just like being a
0: friend of the greatness. Yeah, exactly. Being just around that energy.
1: Yeah, he's just watching the whole thing happen. And then like the first time he came to visit in Nashville and he's like, yo, what is this? He's like, people are fucking taking pictures with you. And like, this is crazy, you know? Like, so like have, knowing the experience of my friends seeing this whole thing and I'm like, oh yeah, I was, I was really very alone in this thing, you know? Mm. And um and not knowing how anybody felt, you know? It's like, I know, I thought my parents loved me and stuff and I, I'm sure that they did and all that. But and like, and it wasn't their fault. They were like being congratulated. They were like, wow, this is an amazing thing you're doing. They didn't know when they were 35 <laughs> that they were like, oh, the more we tell him, like, we really love this thing you're doing. This is so amazing. But we don't say like, hey, you're amazing just for being like, just the, the cross signals there. So I got that out to my mom, like in the hallway of the, the movie theater. Like, you just get to a point where you don't know if anybody loves you. And then it was like, <laughs> I'm crying so hard, dude. I'm walking through the parking lot. And my face is buried in my sister's armpit. She's like cradling my head. And I'm like trying to walk crying. Like it was that mm. fucking gnarly. And I cried the whole way home. And I remember my mom like looking at my stepdad. She's driving me home and she's like looking at my stepdad. She's like, I never even thought of this.
0: Wow. Yeah. And I was like,
1: of course not. Yeah. They just, just I mean, ha-
0: they're doing, they loved you for, for yeah. what you were doing. They like loving what you love doing is like, it's like, a, they, they think they're doing, I mean, they're doing the right thing. I mean, they, they don't know any better. Yeah. Dude, they were so supportive. Like they yeah. were so supportive, you know, like they like, they mm-hmm. loved the whole,
1: they were like, this is amazing. Like do what you want to do. This is incredible. They were like really supportive the whole time, you know? And like when I recorded my album out here in Austin, like both of my parents flew out just to be in the studio and see me do my thing. Like they just wanted to be a part of it, you know? So again, it's like I don't have like blame or anything like that. I just didn't have the emotional tools to know what the fuck was going on, you know. And seeing my mom react that way, it was like whoa, and it, it kind of changed everything. Because as I was backing out of the music industry, right, like you have everyone around you. It's like yo, you have the coolest job in the world. What are you doing? What the fuck else are you going to do besides this? Or my favorite, you have a gift and you have a responsibility to share it with the world. People say that kind of shit, and I'm like oh. You are, you're, you're getting close to a headbutt. don't talk to me like that. You know, like, but it's like, it's very, like, it was wild, man. I started to back out and I just knew I I wasn't fulfilled in it. I really wasn't. Mm. And it became, became golden handcuffs. I kept doing it because I was making really good money and it was quick and easy money, you know, that kind of thing. And then I remember getting to the point where I quit playing bar gigs, like probably four or five years ago and went and lived in Thailand for like six weeks. Like I just immediately traveled because I was like, I really can't, you really can't travel like 300 days a year. Like you got to be on stage. You know, like, your life is not your own. You're playing every holiday, all this shit. Like I remember like I never celebrated New Year's Eve with my friends and family. I was always on stage, like that kind of thing, you know? So. Talk yeah, about the
0: importance of, of traveling in this process of, of kind of self-discovery because I have a very similar journey and I really appreciate you going there, man, and, and sharing that moment. And actually before we get into that, because I feel called to to share just a relatable experience because there's not a lot of people that really understand that. And, you know, my final year, uh, in the NFL, um, you know, through kind of deep contemplation and really getting tugged at like, you know, I think it's time to walk away from this thing and really just starting to realize I'm tired of having to prove myself because I felt mm-hmm. like it was, I lost my starting job for the fifth time and got replaced. And it was just like, fuck, it's never, never good enough. And I had made enough money to to really start questioning like, is this worth it for me to compromise my longevity and my health and my brain health? A lot of the CTE stuff was coming out at that time. And so I made the decision, like, this is going to be my last year playing. And mm-hmm. I was engaged at the time. I told my fiance, uh, you know, Hey, like I'm going to be done playing. This is, this is gonna be my last year. And I, I was appalled at the, the, her response. Like she just was not supportive of the decision. She basically mm-hmm. said like like, no, you're not. What what do you mean? You're just gonna stop playing? And I was like, "Holy shit!" That was very revealing to me of of what our relationship was. Mm -hmm. I was uh, that's one of the layers of me being loved for what I did and not the essence of who I am. Told my parents same thing. Like, you know, my dad, like, "Hey, I'm 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 gonna I'm gonna walk away from this thing. Like, I'm done playing." And and my dad's like, "What What are you talking about? Like, what are you What are you gonna do with yourself? Mm -hmm. Like, you're gonna say no to like, like a millions of dollars like I probably could have made another 10 million dollars easy playing another few years yeah and he just didn't get it because I started waking up and it was a similar thing I started reading books I started understanding expanding my awareness and I just I there was this it felt like a self-created prison Mm -hmm. that you know started off as this beautiful mansion had all the nice things had all the Mm money was able to buy anything I'd ever dreamed of as a kid which is interesting how it loses its zeal when that when that happens. And this beautiful mansion I was living in, metaphorically, started to feel like claustrophobic. And it felt like there started to be bars on the windows. And it's like, wait, when's the last time I've been outside? I don't yeah. know if I've ever been outside because this is the story of who I am. And I started really desiring to understand what was life like outside of the self-created prison that I I've made for myself psychologically. And I, I, there was this part of me that really desired to experience freedom from -hmm. this identity. And then as I started breaking down the stories and started being reflected back to me from the people that were supposed to support me for who I am and love me for who I am, they, they didn't even get it. I was like, holy shit. You know, and that's one of the reasons why when I walked away from the game, like I felt so isolated, so Uh alone. I had no idea who I was. And on, you know, on reflections, like how can I expect others to love me for who I am if I don't even know who I am? And I don't know how to show up as myself because there's this thing that has just been overlaying uh, me for my entire life. And, you know, that's what led me to travel. You know, I ended up giving away all my possessions uh, to charity. And I just wanted to like feel the freedom, even the physical weight of all of the possessions I had. I bought a van and I, I traveled the country and mm. I just went into the unknown and it was really requires a lot of courage to do that and to go on this journey of self-discovery. So I'm curious how much travel played a role in that, that desire to rediscover the actual essence of who you are. Mm,
1: yeah, it was huge, man. I remember I booked my flight to Thailand. was the first place I went to. I booked the flight to Thailand with like, um, I think like four weeks out and I didn't look up anything about Thailand. I just went, I literally showed up. I had no lodging book, no nothing. I had like a fucking Why backpack. Thailand? Uh, because I had checked out Tim Ferriss. A lot of Tim Ferriss' stuff was talking about digital nomads, like digital nomading. Mm. And I had had my company at that time. I'd already started Clovis and stuff. And I was like, cool. I could just like do this from anywhere. I'm going to like be the guy on the beach on Instagram, like running his business, you know? So I just went to Thailand and I knew they had like a good martial arts scene. I wanted to train jujitsu out there, which was cool, which I did get to do. Um... But yeah, that was actually, I, I hadn't slept. It took me like 36 hours to get out there. And it was like, I was running like 42 hours, no sleep by the time I arrived. And I went straight to a jiu-jitsu gym and trained and made like a bunch of friends. And they like kind of showed me around and like, I didn't have anywhere to stay. So I've got this hostel for $10 a night. That was like the size. my room was like the size of a closet. Right. And then I walked around the next day and found a, a apartment and I rented it for 90 days and got a moped. I mean, out 30 days and I got a moped and that was it. I just started like exploring and like you know going to elephant sanctuaries and training jujitsu and like learning about myself and and I actually promised myself I was out there I wasn't going to tell anybody what I did <laughs> so it was like no I wasn't like yeah go look me up on YouTube you know what I mean like I just went there I was just, like trying to be quite anonymous and uh I know we can go here on your show I like made a promise to myself that I wouldn't sleep with anybody I was like I'm just going to be like abstinent and i'm gonna like be kind of anonymous and i'll meet people and that's cool if anyone does ask what i do it's gonna be just about like i have an online business and that's really it you know and i'm like exploring temples and just like walking around just i had a i had a great time it was amazing
0: how much did you get recognized for in nashville for like what you did was it like a daily occurrence someone being like hey justin and like were you pretty well known in the public eye
1: yeah, mostly because of the dueling piano bar. Like Big Bang was a really popular bar there. So I would get stopped a lot in grocery stores and stuff like that. Oh
0: man, like I saw you this weekend. Whoa,
1: you know what I mean? Like it was that kind did of thing. Did you like
0: that or did that annoy you?
1: Like how did I you handle it. this? I liked it a lot. It was It was probably yeah. like, it was infrequent enough that I still liked it. Like I can't yeah, imagine, yeah. like I've, I've never had a mob come attack me in a grocery store or something. You know what
0: I mean? Like no, no, I've imagined no, that. You never uh, risked that Justin Bieber famous, <laughs> <did you? laughs> No,
1: not even close. Not even close. You know, but that's <laughs> the thing is like, it was cool. And I remember like thinking it was really cool if I was with somebody, like if I was out with my parents and somebody recognized me, I was like, oh, this is great. My parents get to see this. You know, it was still like mm. a lot of external validation. Like, yo, love me. Look how special I am. You know what I mean? But mm-hmm. yeah, so Thailand was great. And I met this like group of backpackers and ended up drinking like mushroom smoothies with them. And um, yeah, I remember just having this night with a, a this young woman that I did mushrooms with. And we just like had this whole night of mushrooms together and like cuddled up together. And it was like 0% sexual. And I had all these visions of me like having never had like a nurturing feminine and like all this stuff. And like what my 20s had done, my understanding of like intimacy and sex was totally fucked. And I would like, this all I like kind of came to in a mushroom trip. So I had these like really big, profound experiences out there. And I remember like, I don't keep in touch with that girl now, but I remember thanking her like, wow, this is really magical. Like, I just had a whole intimate evening with a woman that I didn't even kiss. Like, what is this about? Like, I don't even know what this is, dude. This is weird. <laughs> you know, like, it was like that because I had so much of like the the women I was communicating with who were, who were seeing me were like, I went from stage on stage, I'm the guy on stage under the lights to talking to them. It's a completely different experience than someone just experiencing me as a human being that they met, you know? So travel mm. was big for that. I was having a lot of experiences that weren't attached to my musical identity because that was my identity. And, then, and, and that experience helped me realize that in Nashville, like anytime I was at a party or something in Nashville, I'm trying to let someone know within eight minutes that like I play on Broadway because that changes the whole evening. Now it's like, whoa, wait a second. This guy over here, he does the thing. Like we live in Nashville mm. and he's one of the guys. He's a Nashville guy, you know, like it was that. And I just yeah. found that that was a crutch for me. It was a big crutch.
0: That's interesting because I I know like when I tell somebody that I play football even now or I played football immediately their energy towards me it just shifts and some people like that don't give a fuck about football they're like oh that's cool but like big football fans I can just feel their energy shift and just a story is overlaid on top of me yeah and it's nice (laughs) to have and use it use it to my advantage if I'm like trying to get something because like everybody loves football and everybody's like oh but a lot of times it's like I don't like that experience because it's like, I'd rather be seen for who I am and not this football. And that's, you know, part of the reason that I kind of, one of the many layers of why I got in the van and kind of, there's part of me that was running away from this thing that I was just like, had so much shame around really Mm -hmm. of like, I, I wanted to be known for something more than just a football player. And I needed to figure that out for myself. And it's part of the reason that you know, relaunching this podcast is because after five years of deep excavation and healing, I'm finally coming to a place where I feel more integrated with that part of myself. And now I can talk about it freely without it kind of triggering any type of insecurity within me, which is really, really fascinating.
1: Mm, Yeah. Yeah, totally. It is. it's, It's an identity. Right. It's like, and that's, if you think about it, right. Societal programming really is that though. It's like a lot of people, we just get taught, we're going to do a thing. We're going to pick a thing that we want to do when we're around 18 or after college. And we're going to do that thing for 35 years until we retire. And like, it really does become your identity, but it's what you said earlier. I had no idea who I was, dude. And I remember like talking to that first therapist I hired and I told her this specifically. So I did. It's like, I subconsciously knew what was going on, but I explained to her, I was like, it's like, there is a switch that is real. Justin versus performer Justin. And somewhere along the line, somebody duct taped that bitch in the on position. <laughs> and I don't know how to switch it off. And I don't know who the fuck I am. Right. And like I'm just like mm. at every party, I'm like very charismatic and telling jokes. And like I used to say, yeah, send me into a room of a hundred strangers, I'm gonna walk out with a hundred best friends. Like I was just that guy. I was just on all the fucking time. <laughs> you know, and like and I didn't even know I didn't know when it happened, how it happened Like at some point the switch just got stuck and I just, I fried myself, like totally fried myself, man. And I was just trying to figure out, yeah, who am I? Like, I couldn't even answer the question. Like, what do you like? What do you like to do? (laughs) Cause everything was like with an end game. It's like, well, I think I like to work out. Like I work out a lot. I think I like that. I think I like to play music. I'm like clearly doing a lot of that, you know, but like I hadn't done zero shadow work or any kind of integration or anything like that. I didn't know. I didn't know shit, man.
0: Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the deeper psychological processes and, and, and work that you've done. You know, you talked about shadow work, maybe explain some of that from your perspective and the importance of understanding these shadow dynamics, which for those of you that don't know what shadow work is, there's, you know, 95% of us is, is unconscious and Jung Carl Jung coined the term, you know the collective unconscious, and you have the personal unconscious, and then you have the conscious self, which you're only aware of, a very limited bandwidth of perception. And so we all have these unconscious parts of ourselves. We spoke a lot about our family dynamics and our parents, and there's these wounds that happen. And when we have an experience when we're growing up, uh, if it's a traumatic experience and it can even be like a very subtle experience that you, as an adult might not think that big a deal and it wouldn't affect you or traumatize you. In your current state consciousness, but when you're 11 years old or 7 years old, and something happens where you feel unsafe, that can create a trigger that lives in your unconscious. And so, this shadow work is really important when you're learning about yourself. And you know, I talked about integrating myself and me feeling more integrated with that part of myself. It's because I've done a lot of deep shadow work. So, talk about the importance of that in your life and how you kind of came into that. Because I'm sure you had experiences in Thailand. You started waking up and having these deeper connections to self, some psychedelic experiences. But then what kind of turned when you started really diving into this, this kind of depth psychology work on yourself?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Depth psychology was a game changer for sure. You know, for me, it started with traditional therapy. And then I studied the idea of psychedelics through like podcasts and books and stuff for about a year and a half before I had the guts to go do it. I was very comfortable drinking a lot of alcohol, but I still was very programmed that drugs are bad. I was terrified of these things. I had never tried a psychedelic. The first psychedelic I tried was ayahuasca in the jungle with Don Howard. <laughs> it's like the, the first I ever did. Yeah. Like literally found myself in the middle of the fucking rainforest, like drinking ayahuasca. And I did four nights of ayahuasca there. And I didn't even know how to process that. I was just like, what the fuck? Like I had, did, I didn't know what I was looking for because I'd never done a psychedelic. So I'm like, I don't know what the hell is happening, you know? And it was only later after a lot of psychedelic experimentation, I ended up doing a lot at, at on my own and like big heavy mushroom experiences and all these things. Um. So it took me several years after psychedelics to find depth psychology and to start to understand um, like the idea of like the ego shadow thing, the way I try to relate it to people who have not studied this because it's very confusing. And like the new age spiritual world, I don't like the way that that shadow work is, is projected on like 99% of social media. Like, the shadow is this dark thing. It's the scary parts of yourself. It's the part of you that sabotages you. And it's like, no, it's a part of you that hasn't been given love that needs love. You need to love Mm. your shadow as much as you love your ego. That's shadow integration, right? It's not like, oh, yeah, here's this weird part of yourself that's trapped in the basement. And you got to go face it because it's real scary. It's like, no, there's like a little kid in there that you need to love, you know? So what it was for me was I just, I discovered that when... Ego versus shadow is basically what got you love as a child and what took love away from you as a child. What got you more love is going to be your ego. What got you less love or took love away from you is going to be in your shadow. So for me, I was very loud. I was very charismatic. I was happy all the time. I was needless. I never cried. All these things are in my ego because I got a lot of love for that. Now there's somebody out there who tried to play piano and sing and dance for their parents. And they were like, be quiet. Stop it. Why are we playing that fucking piano? Knock it off. I'm tired from work. Stop doing that. Like that kid's ego. I mean, that kid's ego is going to be, be quiet. Don't make noise. Don't be loud. Be like, he's going to grow up to be a wallflower. Like his, his public speaking will probably be very difficult for that person. You know what I mean? And then in their shadow is like public speaking, getting up and being loud, making yourself known, being outgoing, like that's in their shadow. So they're going to need to learn to foster that side of themselves and like, like uh, nurture that side of themselves. I had to nurture the other side of myself, which is I have a lot of needs and sometimes I'm fucking sad and I need people to help me and I need to lean on other people. And like, even, I mean, dude, it took me till this year with like you and our friends to like learn how to comfortably lean on the masculine and like get a hug from a guy and like breathe into it. You know what I mean? Like it really took me a long time to sort that shit out, dude, because I was like such a tough guy growing up. So um yeah, it was it was really that. It was Young's work was huge for me. Um, there was a, a literal a young psychotherapist that my partner Megan had worked with that she introduced me to in Denver, worked with him. His stuff was really eye-opening for me. He helped me kind of get rid of my like savior complex, which was like, as I was going through personal development, kind of like we talked about Christians, like first learned about Christianity and they're like, let me tell you about Jesus, right? (laughs) I was like, very like, Mm -hmm. let me tell you about psychedelics and that kind of thing. And he kind of helped me lose that and just like allow the people I love to have their own experience and have their own journey. Um, And then I eventually, I worked with a coach in Bali where I learned a a protocol that I now teach to my private clients because I work with a lot of people one-on-one, which was called Emotional Unleashing. And he just really taught me to work through, um, essentially sadness, anger, rage, uh, sexual feelings, uh, feelings of things being unfair. Like he like taught me how to throw tantrums literally and like smash pillows and scream into them and like do all this shit and like really just like feel through my emotions. And that was the most working with him was like probably the most profound six weeks period of my my whole thing really, where I like cracked open a lot of stuff and I was just like crying every day for six weeks and like, what is this? I don't even know how to cry. Like, what is going on? You know? So it was really, yeah, it was like traditional talk therapy and podcasts, books, all that kind of stuff. And then that led me into plant medicines. And I I will say like, I went heavy into plant medicines. Like I, that's a very, very big part of my journey. And like, just... What, is, what does heavy mean? What, what do you mean by that? Hero doses of everything. Like there was no... Uh, prior to two years ago, I had never used a recreational psychedelic. It was like, if I was doing psychedelics, it was like five grams or seven grams of mushrooms, like alone in my house with an eye mask on.
0: <laughs> like I was doing it with the intention of like going deep within yourself. Exactly. Yeah. Which is why I chose wow. Ayahuasca first.
1: I was like, I'm going to go have like a blast myself into a different dimension experience. And I went to spirit quest with Don Howard. And yeah. And then from there, would you recommend
0: me. that to people that are on this journey?
1: I, I think I would. Uh, for sure. I would actually, but I would say, uh, I don't have any known mental health issues. I have mm-hmm. never personally struggled with depression or anxiety. I've never even remotely thought of like myself as bipolar or having like, I've never really struggled with being tethered to reality. I do think there are people that can have psychological breaks from these things if they're not ready for them, in which case you'd probably want to try to hunt down an experience where you can work with a therapist or something and try to do it in a legal way and like find a, a center or something you can go to or something like that. Um, cause the jungle is a scary place. There's not much out there. Like we, I, I always tell the story, we had a guy on that retreat that fell and broke his arm and we put his wallet in his mouth cause he was a doctor and reset his own arm and made a sling and You're stuck there, bro. There's nowhere to go. Like, it's a two hour riverboat ride to get out of this place, you know? So, like, it's a scary situation to put yourself through for sure, you know? But it was big for me. But the thing I will say is, like, I definitely probably would have done something like mushrooms first to even know what I was looking for. I didn't even know what I was looking... I don't even know what a psychedelic feels like. Like, what is this? I don't know what's happening. (laughs) Like, all of a sudden, I'm like having images and thoughts pop in my mind. And I'm like, wait, I thought I was going to like see a movie. And there was going to be like a real-life dragon that like appeared in front of me because I heard all, all these stories from people about like how vivid it is. And it's like, it's nothing like any story I had ever heard, you know? So I actually think I did a disservice to myself listening to so many podcasts and hearing other people's experiences and not having any kind of experience myself and going straight there. I think it really took away from my experience, but ultimately it led me to, you know, where I am now. And, and I've had profound experiences. I mean, I think psychedelics are probably 60 to 70% of the growth that I've had. I attribute to at least the headspaces that I get to in that place. I'm also very, very good about integrating psychedelic experiences, you know,
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'll just offer set and setting is so important. And if you're new to these types of medicines and don't have experience always, I mean, there's plenty of really good facilitators out there and, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, do your homework. Uh, and I would say this experiences, I I have a similar experience. Like the experiences shared is never and the processing afterward is never even where anywhere close to the actual experience. And I agree with you, man, like psychedelics have had such a huge impact on my healing journey. I think for me, you know, you're talking about the emotional release type therapies Mm -hmm. and the psychosomatic experience. And one of the things, especially in our culture and society, especially as men, is, you know, we suppress a lot of of emotion, emotional Mm -hmm. energy. Mm -hmm. And for me, I've really come to find that, you know, healing only takes place through the feeling and through the movement of energy. And so learning to feel is such an important tool. Learning to to access these it's not just you know working in the mind and finding these stories and trying to rewrite them like cognitive behavioral therapy it's a good model but it's it's missing the real the real juice which is going into the experience and being able to move that energy because we have when we have an experience of a trauma when we're younger that energy that is unprocessed is actually still stored in our nervous system mm-hmm. which is f- so fucking fascinating mm-hmm. and being able to access that and have a cathartic release like you shared when you told your mom, like, I just not sure if anybody's ever really loved me. Like mm-hmm. that's a like a deep, unconscious, unprocessed amount of grief that was just so uncontrollable. It just, it, it had to release. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure it was super cathartic as you went through that. It probably felt super raw afterwards, but a lot yeah, lighter, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. In a big way. And that's the thing. I don't know if I ever shared with
1: this in, in our private conversations when we hang out, but, um, when I first worked with that coach that taught me the emotional unleashing technique, the same day I called my talk therapist and was like, our work together is done. Mm. It was that profound. And she understood. She was like, I get it. I had been asking her for two years. I was like, there's got to be something more than this. We just get together and have a fucking conversation. Like, and now I have all this awareness. What the, What is awareness? Awareness is nothing without action. Awareness is like step one. And then you need to have action. Like Megan talks about this constantly. She's just like, great. You have awareness now. Amazing. How do you break patterns? How do you make the future look different? And that was what was happening is I was intellectualizing everything, but I wasn't feeling any of it. And I literally had my first session with this guy over Zoom and I'm crying and I'm smashing pillows and I'm screaming and I'm like, (laughs) and and she was like, you know what? Like as, as a talk therapist, she's like, yeah, like what you have been looking for and what you have been asking me for two years I'm really sorry. She apologized to me. She's like, I can't provide that for you. Like, you're entering into territory that I'm completely unfamiliar with. And like, I'm so happy for you. I was crying on the call. I'm like, I don't really want to fire you, but like, this is so different. What is happening? You know what I mean?
0: Like, you're actually feeling like I need yeah. this, and I'm feeling it. And you're not providing it, but now you are because I'm saying goodbye.
1: A hundred percent, exactly. And I had for like two years, I had been like, Yo, there's more to this than 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 what mm. you're telling. Like, there's got to be something else. Like, I'm just like, Yeah, okay, I have all the awareness, whatever. And that was when I started leaning into vulnerability and like really breaking patterns and having hard conversations that I needed to have and sharing parts about myself. Like, and now like, you know, it's very jarring people that have not done this work is like, I am so unbelievably honest. Like even you've seen me in, in public settings, obviously, right? Like there's very few questions that somebody could ever ask me that I won't just give them an honest answer for. And I don't really care how deep or dark, deep or dark it is. Somebody could be like, do you have sexual trauma as a child? They'll be like, yeah, you want me to tell you about it? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I don't, I just don't care. I'm like, this is, this is 100% who I am. And I show up authentic. It took me years to get here. And the more I do that, the better everything gets. Every aspect of my relationship, my, of, of my romantic relationship, my friends, you are beautiful community. My parents, my parents know me deeper than they've ever known me. My friends from childhood know me better than they've ever known. Me. You know what I mean? It's just like now the question of, does anybody love me for who I am? Fuck. Yeah countless. And I know that and it changed my life completely. I sit in a completely different place. People ask me all the time, I think with you too. And I know like we could we go back and forth. We have our moments, right? But people are like, do you miss it? You miss being on stage? And I'm like, no, no. It, I know that it would be fun for me to get up and play for 30 minutes and like have a good time, especially with like my friends and my friends want to see me play for 30 minutes. And I'm like, yeah, I'm good. Let's, let's go hang out. Like, I don't want to be up here anymore. You know what I mean? Like it'd feel good for a second. But if you told me I had to be up there for four hours, like my old gigs, I'd be like, no, get me out of here. This is awful. I want to hang out with my friends, you know? Like, so that was ultimately what it was. It's just like, and of course you get to the place where you and I have had deep, deep conversations about this. And and it's very hard to go here if you haven't experienced it, but that is when you start to realize that you never knew if anybody loved you because you never knew if you loved yourself. <laughs> and you were just ding, constantly ding, ding, ding. trying to prove to yourself that you had fucking value, you know? And that was it. And I look back and this is what we talked earlier. Like there were red flags all along the way. Dude, every fucking time I stepped on stage, I was feeling anxiety. I was like, I hope my voice sounds okay. Oh my God. Like I, My 10,000 hours were in by the time I was like 20, you know? And then there I am at 25, like getting, oh, I hope my voice sounds okay. Oh my God, I hope people like this. You know what I mean? It's just like, dude, what was I doing? Just like searching for validation so fucking hard. And I didn't know if I was good enough. And then, then I got an entrepreneurship and I started my podcast and it's just like imposter syndrome. Am I smart enough? Do I know enough about biochemistry to do this? Are people really going to listen to me? And then you realize just this endless cycle. And when you have those toxic patterns where it's like, yeah, if you're unsure, if you love yourself, you will live the rest of your life being unsure if anybody
0: loves you. Hmm. Aho, brother. Aho. That's that's the secret. This journey, is only, it's all a journey back to self. It's all a journey of self-love and learning to love yourself. And you can only love another to the extent that you love yourself. You can only receive love to the extent that you love yourself. And mm-hmm. you start realizing that to love another is to love yourself because we are all in this experience together. We are all one. And um, man, I could talk to you for hours, dude. I really, really appreciate it. This <laughs> is know, a fucking dude. powerful... Powerful conversation, man. I really appreciate your vulnerability and your shares. This is definitely going to have a massive impact on -hmm. on all those that are listening. And I really, really appreciate it, brother.
1: Yeah, man. Thank you so much. I I didn't know where we would go with this conversation, but I'm like super thrilled with with where we went. And I appreciate it. It was like quite cathartic for me. And yeah, it it was really magical.
0: That was fantastic. Thank you all for listening. Uh, Justin, where can people find you? I know you have a few companies, supplements, and you do really, really incredible work with, with metabolic coaching mm-hmm. and all of that. So maybe share where people can find you if they're interested in in working with you. Yeah,
1: it's funny because we didn't we didn't get there. We didn't get there on the, on I know, the conversation. I thought we'd, we'd get there totally like
0: cool. uh, at least halfway through.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, any, anywhere I can be found at the Clovis Culture. My primary company is called Clovis, dot com. So at the Clovis Culture are all my handles. I have a podcast, YouTube, Instagram, TikTok, all that. And uh, what Joe's talking about here is I do work one-on-one with clients. And uh, the whole spiel is I just teach people to get healthy through self-love and abundance rather than self-punishment and restriction. So we have this whole diet and fitness culture, eat less calories, move more, stop being lazy, punish yourself in the gym, restriction, restriction, restriction. And I do it the opposite way. I literally coach people into loving themselves right now, no matter how they look, no matter what their physical capabilities are. I teach them to love themselves and the healthiest version of themselves comes out of themselves once they start doing that.
0: Awesome. That'll all be in the show notes. So go check it out. And if you aren't a part of our Telegram community, Uh, there'll be a link in the show notes. You're going to want to join that because I possibly could get Justin here to do a follow-up exclusive uh, workshop type conversation that will dive more into some of that stuff that's really, really valuable for that community specifically if you're open to it, Justin. I would love
1: to. Yeah, absolutely.
0: My man. I really appreciate you, brother. And I'll, I'll definitely see you soon. Yeah. Thank you so much, man. I appreciate you.
1: All right, everybody. Peace.